Let's just look to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity we have to gather here in this place to sing these hymns of praise, to be reminded of the power, the beauty, the glorious love that emanates from not only the name of Jesus, but the very person himself. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are here amongst us. We pray that your Holy Spirit will open our ears that we might hear the message you have for each and every one. Just as our faces are different, Lord, so are our needs different. But we acknowledge again that you are sufficient to direct us to the cross, to direct us to the one who is able to do exceeding abundant above all that we can ask or think. To the end that the glory belongs to you, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this, uh, first of all, is just a way of commenting to say um, our... our, uh, collective grief to uh, both Carmen and to uh, Doug and Sarah on their respective losses. And I think that uh, the wonderful thing that we discover as Christians that we grieve, but we don't grieve as the world grieves. And so we can miss our loved ones, but know that there is a reunification coming, that a happy day has happened we can look forward to those reunifications. The photo that you see in front of you is um, a happy day as well. We were taking a trip to the uh, to the visitation, and on the way back, we happened to notice the snow was fairly high. And um, this is uh, this is a no photoshopping here. This is the actual height of the snow, and um, this is on a main highway. I'd hate to think of what took place before they cleared that snow back, um, but it's definitely a, a fairly major, uh, major snowfall there. And uh, as a person who is an avid spring watcher, I don't know if you're one of those people, but looking for the first signs of spring, uh, this isn't one of them. Um, but the good news is I did see my first sign of spring, and that was uh, just a couple of days ago, um, driving home by the McIntyre. I noticed um, a fellow driving along with a small pickup with it loaded down with wood. And I said, ah, oh, st- the home renovation is starting. That's definitely a sign of spring. And then um, the second sign of spring was that, of course, the, uh, the, uh, our friend was uh, telling us that the crows have returned. The hardy crows have come back. They're usually the first uh, birds to come from the south. So um, on his word, I to you, the crows have returned. Um, and I hope he wasn't just looking at ravens. <laughs> but nevertheless, um, those are two good signs. And of course, the third sign, um, I don't know if you do this, but I'm certainly one to do this. I look, I have a spot where I look out and I measure the height of the sun. And I'm glad to announce to you that the sun is now almost the full height of my front window. And it's going to soon overtake the window and be almost overtaking us by being directly above at the noon hour time. And of course, that is looking forward to that in a little under three weeks' time. So it's really moving quickly, despite the fact what you may be told by your um, sensory organs like your, your skin and, your, uh, and your, the, the, the frigid air that you're experiencing. Um, spring is actually on the way, and it is on schedule, and um, the groundhog may be right. <laughs> but um, nevertheless, this... Um, 
This passage is not about the spring, it is about the prodigal son. So I ask you this question, what do these three have in common? I'll just give a fairly quick review of the pictures, see if you recognize the pictures. Three, these three, um, you may recognize them just from your own history, from your own, uh, perhaps your own uh, backgrounds or whatever. Maybe it'll help to give you a name. First picture is Nikola Tesla, famous engineer, inventor, physicist, a genius, really, an inventor responsible for the AC motors and power systems still in use, by the way, today. He was uh, uh, working in the 1890s, about the same time as Thomas Edison, and um, he generously tore up the royalty contracts with Westinghouse Corporation and chose instead to receive a one-time payment of 216000 which was pretty pretty substantial funds in those days. But as a result, um, basically lost all of his royalties to his inventions and lost most of his money on an attempted project where he was attempting to broadcast on a 187-foot tower, tower uh, free electricity across the Atlantic, but with no wires. Um, his health began to deteriorate, showing signs of of autism, claimed he'd fallen in love with a pigeon, and died in 1943 at age 87. The next person on the picture that you saw was Edgar Allan Poe. Some of you know him for his poetry. And he was an amazing, prolific poet. He died October 7, 1864. At that point in the year in October, he had only earned $274 for his efforts. That would be the equivalent of about $8,000 in today's currency. He made even less the year before and doing all this to support a family of three. And the third person, Judy Garland. Some of you would remember her from her movie Star Days. She um, died in 1969 due to an accidental drug overdose at the age of 47. At that point in time, even after, despite the fact that she'd been earning $55,000 a week, her lack of business sense, addictions, and lavish lifestyle meant that she was $4 million in debt at the time of her death. So, what do all these three have in common? You might have guessed. These three, although geniuses in their own levels, they were extremely popular, they were wealthy in life, but they all died in abject poverty. And what does this have to do with the parable of the prodigal son? Well, to understand this parable, we must realize that it's found in Luke's gospel. Of the four gospels, each one of the gospels tells the story of Jesus in a slightly different way. That's very important to you understand. Luke is the only Gentile who wrote the one of the gospels. He was also a doctor. So... It's rather interesting when he talks about the woman who had the hemorrhage of blood for 12 years and he said that she was just touched the hem of the garment. It was his account that puts it very nicely. But Mark makes a stronger case. He says that she spent all she had on the doctors and actually was getting worse. So Mark's account, as a, as a looking at it from a different point of view, Luke he was being a little bit more generous towards his doctor colleagues. Um, nevertheless, Luke's account tells us the story of Jesus as the perfect man, the humanity of the Lord Jesus. 
as the perfect man who became the perfect sacrifice for our sin. So to get it in context, let's look not at the Luke 15 account as we start the reading, but at the beginning of the chapter. And while we need to do that in order to get some context, we're not going to go very far because that is Mark's passage, which he will be taking on next week. So what does it say in verse 1? That all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. Near to Jesus to hear him. Tax collectors. Tax collectors. Uh, King James says publicans. And it's important that we understand that people who weren't necessarily the, the elite, the respectable, the professional and polished. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Aren't you? You know, that he takes us as we are and he does not ask you to go through a set of requirements to become a child of God. But that's kind of moving ahead. So he was a friend of sinners and the tax collectors were among those who he was a friend of. In fact, it may very well be that one of those tax collectors at that party that day was in fact Zacchaeus. You know, the little guy who ran up the, the tree and we always sing about in Sunday school. You know, wee little man. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up onto a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior came that day, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, come on down, for I'm going to your house today. And uh, Zacchaeus might have been in that group. We know Matthew was certainly a part of that group. He was one of the intimate disciples, but he had also been a publican, a tax collector. Now, we don't understand just how despised this group was until we get the history of the publicani. They were a part of a group that were inscripted to the equites. And the equites were basically the aristocrat of the day who went to the tax people and said, listen, I'll give the whole amount of the tax You don't have to collect it from anybody else but me, and then I'll subcontract this out to my public handy who will go around and do the collections. And, of course, the way the equites got their money is, of course, they invested extra monies and raised funds above and beyond what they'd already paid out. So it was was kind of like a harvest of money. And as these publicans would go out, they would overcharge when they had the opportunity, Luke 3.13. They brought false charges of smuggling in hopes of extorting hush money, Luke 19 and 18. They detained and opened letters on mere suspicion. It was the basis of all occupations everywhere. They were regarded as traitors, apostates, and willing tools of Rome. In a practical sense, they were excommunicated. They were despised. They were not your friends. But of Jesus, they were. I find that's really important because Jesus was a friend of the publicans, of the tax collectors, and the sinners. Now, this is a term that that is found in the scriptures repeatedly, and it's a term for those who habitually were considered the lowest in society, the common folk who were never considered the need for salvation. They were ones who, in fact, would be generally not going to 
the synagogue, not going to the temple. Generally didn't have any money for a sacrifice. Poor. Um, not the exclusive uh, upper crust of society. No, these were the regular folk, the you and I's, the sinners. And he was a friend of sinners. In fact, the big claim was that this man receives sinners and eats with them. Wow. Wow. I got a question. How many sinners do you eat with brothers and sisters in Christ? This is important, isn't it? Because Jesus was known to like to have a meal with people who were not like him. And yet they loved to be around him. So the question I have to ask myself as I'm looking at this is, am I really being like Jesus and reaching out to those who are not like Jesus? And am I inviting them into my house to have meals? Am I spending time with them at around the table? Something to think about. Sinners. But it says that the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to hear him and the Pharisees make this complaint. Who were the Pharisees and the scribes? Who were these people? Well, the Pharisees were a religious party who were among the Jews at the time of Christ called from the Aramaic perishim or separated ones. There were three groups. There were the formalists, that would be the Pharisees, the free thinkers, that would be the Sadducees, and the Puritans, that would be the Essenes or the, the very strictest of the strict, the hermits. Well, how did they ever get to that stage? Realizing, first of all, that the account of the message from Moses had been transmitted for a long time, had been copied by the scribes, actually. And the word scribe comes from the word to count, and it has the idea of to write, to set an order, to count. And the thought is that the scribes were the ones who were transmitting um, the word of God. I'm so glad for the printing press. Up until the 14th century, um, the word of God had to be laboriously copied by hand. I'm so glad for the Internet. Up until 20 years ago, the word could not be transmitted freely like you and I can transmit it freely. You can set up your own website. You can do your own uh, evangelism right there on the Internet for the entire world. It's a wonderful time. The Pharisees and the scribes complain. This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus subsequently tells three parables. Three parables. The one you see in front of you is the third of the three. The first two are the story of the hundred sheep of which one is lost. And that goes from verses three or four to verses seven. And then verses eight through to verse 10 is the story of the lost coin. And each one of those, the Lord Jesus says, they rejoiced because this which was lost is now found. He now tells the story of the prodigal son. And a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said, Father, give me the allotted portion of the family estate of the goods that belong to me. So he distributed to them both of his estate. And not many days passed when the younger son gathered all together, traveled to a faraway region, and there dissipated all his wealth 
with a life of parties and luxury. Wow. What was he doing? He was saying to his dad, Dad, listen, you're a rich man. You've got a nice estate here. I'm entitled to a third of it. That's what the law in Deuteronomy said. It said the elder son would get two-thirds of the portion and the younger son would get one-third. This would happen when the father passed away. But there was a provision that said if, in fact, the father wanted to give it early, he could do so. And so somehow the younger son got anxious about his inheritance and he jumps the gun. says, Dad, I'm not going to wait around for you to pop off here. I'm going right now. But come on, give me my share of the inheritance. I don't know whether this was partially the older son's plan as well. We don't know the exact how this all came about. The older son didn't actually object in the story to receiving his portion early as well. We sometimes miss that. But the older son actually gets his portion early because of the younger son. And sometimes in the dimensions of families, it hasn't been unknown for the older one to kind of put the idea in the younger person's. No, you guys have siblings. You know what I'm talking about, right? And you put it into the sibling, into your younger one, and the younger one comes, Mom, can we have that pie right now? You wouldn't dare ask it yourself, but you could get the younger one to do it. And so somehow they got their inheritance early. Well, because of that, the younger son didn't just take his inheritance early. He could have stayed. He could have worked the farm. He could have worked with his elder brother. But no, he travels away to a far-off land. And when he wasted all his inheritance, there became a massive famine in that region. And he started to experience poverty. He journeyed and hired himself to a citizen of that country who dispatched him to his farm in order to feed his pigs. Wow. And he longed in his heart to have filled his stomach with the food the pigs were eating. But absolutely no one gave him any food. I don't know about you, but have you ever been around a pig farm? Yep. There's a few nodding your heads. My grandma, when I was younger, had a pig farm, and that was part of our duties to feed the pigs. And we'd bring down the old rotten apples and the corn cobs that had been thrown out into the refuse, and we'd bring the slop that had been set aside. could be old porridge. It could be just soup. Who knows what it would be. They're pretty pigs were pretty indiscriminating. They didn't mind. When they saw us, they always said, "Hey, food's here!" And they just start. Oh, wah, 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 wah. They were just making the noise, and you'd you'd get down there and uh, just boy, you could barely get the slop out before they were chomping away. The big guys always got in there first, and the little guys had to wait their turn. But I'll tell you something. That was a tough thing to make a buck on pig farming. But I'll tell you one thing, I sure like the bacon. The product at the other end is something else, isn't it? Wow. Especially with Joel's jowl bacon. Joel, if you're around, kudos to you, bro. You got it down. This son, he had several errors, though, in his thinking. 
he had several errors in his thinking and led him to this position. He first of all thought that money was the most important thing. Lots of people today think that money, status, fame, education, a job that is high paying, that's what you go for. But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? That's what the Lord said in Matthew 16, 26. He said it, by the way, not to outsiders. He said it to his disciples, to us, to those who were following. You see, here's an aside that I think we have to remember as believers. We've been brought with a price. We, we are owned by the Lord Jesus. We are his followers. We are his disciples. But the world is constantly going to say, hey, wait a minute. Come on over here. This is more important. Come on over here. This is more important. And the Lord is saying, no, what's really important are the people that I died for. What is really important are those people that you are rubbing shoulders with, that I am rubbing shoulders with, that are lost and helpless and are looking for answers and have no way out. Except if you tell them about Jesus. And so we need to be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The man erred that money was the most important, but he also erred in five other ways. First of all, he left. And he left not only his family, but he left his security. He left. Did you ever think of how much was tied in right now, where you are right now, how much was tied into your parents, your grandparents, the provisions of your of your location in your country of Canada, um, all of the free things that you've just taken for granted? Did you ever think about all those things and then put yourself in some island nation, even in the tropics, where you have nothing and you go, wonder what I would be like down there? You see... So much of what we have as believers has been padded in, as it were, because of our place in this land and in our families and in what others have given to us. We need to remember to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. There's no such thing as a hermit Christian. There's too many today that think, I have the freedom to be who I am and what I am, and I don't need the collective gathering of believers. Let me tell you, we are told in Hebrews, we read it this morning, Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Let us not do that because we have a collective need. Sometimes, I was sharing with this uh, brother in Christ, and we say sometimes we just need a swift boot in the bottom to get us moving. Sometimes we need to be in charge to go forward. Sometimes we need to be comforted. But we're not going to get that staring at a computer or staring at a TV screen, but you will get it. Sometimes you won't like it, but you will get it when you are rubbing shoulders. The, you know, the, the believer once said, you know, hold to dwell with saints above, that will be glory. Hold to dwell with saints below, that's a different story. But the point is, that different story needs to be a part of our lives. He needed to be with his family. He erred in thinking that the good life would continue. I love what Mark Lauer used to say in one of his videos. He'd talk to the young people and he'd say, you jocks out there, you got energy to spare. You can run, you can fight, you can, you've got muscles, you've got biceps, you've got pecs, you've got all these things going for you. This too shall pass. You see, we need to realize that we have a life that's full of seasons. 
And we all need one another for every season of that life. He hired himself to that pig farmer. And uh, that in itself was something he should not have done. Leviticus 5.2 says, if a person touches any unclean thing, pig, whether a carcass or the unclean livestock, he shall be unclean and guilty. And he erred in lusting for the pig food. Leviticus 10.10 says, you might distinguish between the holy and the unclean, between the, the holy and the unholy, between the unclean and the clean. But I love what he did. He came to himself. It says he came to himself and said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread in abundance and I'm dying here with hunger? I will stand up, return to my father. I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before your face. I'm no longer deserving to be called your son. Employ me as one of your hired workers. And he stood up and returned to his father. What does the prodigal realize? First of all, he comes to his senses. He comes to himself. The quality is a very, very important. He comes to himself. And what happens when he returns to his father? While he was still a great distance away, his father saw him. Have you ever thought about that? Why was it that his father was sitting out outside the house somewhere looking out across the fields? Why was he doing that? I suspect it was because like many a parent who has lost someone in their family and they are far away from God, we're still looking for them to come back. We've been praying before the Lord, asking that they would come back. And he saw him and he was moved with great sympathy. Oh, yes, he was moved with extreme sympathy. And sympathy and compassion are the ingredient that you and I need today more than ever to communicate God's love. And he ran and hugged his son. Do you ever think about that? People that are in pig farms don't smell very good. You and I who know what that's like, it's not the kind of thing you want to give him a hug for. But love does just that. And he kissed him on the neck. Why? Because he was showing him love. But the father would now be ceremonially unclean as well. But he wasn't afraid because that was his son. And he was back from the grave. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned. I love this part because the son follows through with what he said he was going to do. True sign of repentance is the follow-through. It's not the great emotional display. It's not the great feelings of euphoria. I finally come to what I need. It's not about feeling. It's about willful decision, willful act. And it says, he, while he was a great distance away, his father saw him, moved with great sympathy, ran and hugged his son, kissed him, and his son said, I have sinned. Against heaven. All sin is a sin against heaven. We don't get that today. We don't understand that when we do wrong, we're not just sinning against another person. We're not just sinning against the environment. We're not just sinning against ourselves. We are sinning against the almighty, holy God who says, do not do these things. And then he says, and I have sinned in your sight. I no longer deserve to be called your son. You see, repentance has a number of very briefly, you have to come to oneself. If you read the story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, he comes to himself in his insanity. He comes to himself and looks up to heaven and says, Almighty God, you are the answer. God of Daniel, you are the answer. Paul had to come to himself as well. You and I have to come to the Lord and realize that this is a turnover of our lives. 
Secondly, recognize the father was generous. How many servants have better food than I have right now? It makes sense. It's not just about um, returning and apologizing. It was that he was looking for sustenance. And finally, stand up and return. Go back and ask for forgiveness and say, I no longer deserve it. I no longer deserve it. Psalm 16:11 says, you will show me the path of life. Your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But I no longer deserve this, not by works of righteousness, Titus 3 and 5 says, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And what are the results? And the father says, bring out the best garments, put them on him, give him a ring for his hand, shoes for his feet, fetch grain, fed calf here and slaughter it. Let us eat and rejoice. This my son was dead and risen from the dead. He was destroyed and is now found. And they began to be merry. The best garments in rags to now having the best garments. The best ring. I found this ring. It's a wedding ring from the 7th century. Byzantine wedding ring. I'm not sure that that would be the ring that he would have given his son. But who knows what kind of a ring he gave the best shoes, sandals probably. But they remind us that God says, your shoes will not wear out, even on your feet. The best roast, it would be kosher, of course, but it would be lovely. And then, of course, the best music. Of course, there's a debate today about the best music. We won't go there. But we will say this. The best music is the music that glorifies Jesus, whatever that music is. Does it glorify music, uh, the Lord Jesus? But we have finally the demanding brother, the elder brother. And as he approaches, he hears this concert of instruments and crowds dancing. And he calls one of the young servants and says, what is this? And says, your brother has arrived. Your father has butchered the grain-fed calf. He's returned in good health. And the older brother was furious. He would not even enter the house. So his father went outside and called him to come in. And he responded to his father, look, all these many years I've been like a slave to you. I never neglected any time your instructions. You've never given me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours returns home, he who has devoured all your estate with the purchase of parties and prostitution, you go ahead. You roast the grain-fed calf. All for him. The father said, son, you're always with me. All I have is yours. He might have added, all your brother has now is yours as well. The grain-fed calf that we just slaughtered was yours. And is it not right that we should rejoice and be full of Marion? Your brother was dead and has come back to life and was destroyed and has been found safe. What's the hardest thing that happens in sibling rivalry? I think it's the hardest thing is when you have that conflict that takes place between siblings and there's no forgiveness. And this elder brother shows absolutely no forgiveness to his younger brother. Now, his younger brother had taken off with one-third of the estate. So now they had to shrink the family farm. They had to shrink the number of servants. They had to shrink the the livestock numbers. They had to make do with one-third less, and they didn't get the benefits of the younger son's work as well. And now he comes back, and he has the gall to say he's a son of this family? 
Yes. And why? Because of the Father's forgiveness. Any person who comes to faith in Christ, regardless of who they are, is a child of God and is no more less in, inferior or more in, or more superior to any person in the family of God. He's been died and he has been now found safe. The elder brother heard the music and he fumed. I hope that's not any of our experiences, you know. That music just troubles me. I never liked that music anyways. The elder brother became furious at the grace to his brother. Somebody gets unexpected gift of grace. What is grace? You don't deserve it. Well, who of us deserves? What we deserved was hell. And the Lord Jesus died that we might have heaven and have security and have joy and peace and new life right now. The elder brother separated himself. I'm not going in there. No way. Hmm. No way. I'm not going there. His, his father comes out. Probably good that his brother didn't come out. <laughs> and he believed that he was owed a party. Man, I want, I want my due. Hey, you better not say that to God. <laughs> the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. The elder brother missed the whole point. This chapter makes clear there's one message of salvation. God welcomes and forgives repentant sinners. The two parables reveal at the beginning that the shepherd seeks the lost sheep. The woman searches for the lost coin. But there's man's part in salvation as well. The wayward son willingly repented and returned home. The older son thought he didn't need to repent. Just like the Pharisees whom Jesus was talking to. Now, lest we think that we're not in that group that has been talked to, just remember, if we have not fully turned our life over to Jesus Christ and we're still depending on our good works, we're just like the Pharisees. I have a story of a modern prodigal son, and I'm going to keep it very short. This gentleman's name is Vince Lynch-Leitner. He loved Johnny Cash, lived in Seattle, and he was busted by his dad at the age of 13 for smoking pot. His dad said, listen, it's going to work this way. It's either my way or the highway. So what did he do? At the age of 13, he ran away. Second time he left, he ran away for good. He says, I had a defiance for all authority, especially when I started getting into drugs. I despised authority. And drugs became the way of life for Vince. He described himself then as the punk who stole from his parents to support his drug habit. By the time of 18, he was a full-blown drug addict. And he said, I was completely lost. I had no real grip on what life was all about. When he was 19 years old, he and his friend Bobby, who had built up a successful, if you can call it successful, drug dealing business. And one day the drug dealer called and blamed them for losing a lot of money and said that she was going to send over somebody to kill them and anybody who lived in their house. And so Vince got left with a shotgun and a lot of dope and he stayed high for two straight weeks. I was really suicidal. I turned the gun to my head three different times in those two weeks, he said. At one point, he was completely alone, totally isolated. And he found out 
that his parents had moved to Arkansas and found their number. And the next thing he remembers is calling home and telling his father everything except his attempts at suicide. His father was hesitant at first. Finn says, I remember telling my dad that I needed to come home and I was in a bad spot. He told me you would have, he would have to think about it. And he would talk to his wife. He said, what are you talking about, your wife? Don't you mean mom? And the fact is, he said, Vince, you've abandoned our trust so many times. You've used us. You've walked out on us. You're supposed to be a man, to be out on your own. We just don't know if we can open up our home to somebody who's going to abuse our trust again. He said he'd call back and let me know. And Vince thought, wow, wow, man, have I ever messed up. I call my parents, I tell them everything except for the fact that my life is in danger. And they just say, well, we're, we'll kind of think about it. <laughs> and this first time I felt any remorse, he said, for any decisions I've made. Parents called back and said, yes, brought him around to trick it back to fly home for Christmas. Now, when I got home, I put my stuff down, went into the guest bedroom and crashed for two to three straight days. It was peace at last. And during those days, God performed a miracle. A lot of people say big money and go to rehab to get detox. Having muscle spasms and real pain and migraines, I crashed for two or three days and God literally detoxed me in my sleep. When I woke up, my sheets were strained yellow. I'd sweat out all the toxins while asleep. And for that point on, I never had any desire to do crack again or acid. God delivered Vince, but not only the drugs, but the painful side effects of detoxing. Vince woke up ready to find Jesus, and he saw his first glimpse of Christ and his parents. When I woke up, I took a shower, walked out to the living room, and there was my dad sitting in chair reading the paper. He dipped the top of the paper down and said, Morning, your mom's in the kitchen making breakfast. I fully expected from that moment on that he would just ring me out, you know, go at me for the lifestyle I've lived. I walked into the kitchen, and mom says, Hey, you want some breakfast? I said, yeah, that'd be great. And we just chit-chatted. There, there never was an ever. It never came up. What Vince didn't know was that his parents had become Christians since moving to Arkansas, and they wanted to show forgiveness to their prodigal son. It was the first time I'd met Jesus in the flesh, he said. And I didn't even know it. But I did know that there was something going on. So one day, the daughter of his parents' pastor invited Vince to church. There he met the youth pastor, Rob, and his wife, Rhonda, who had a different story that touched Vince's heart. And then after hearing Rhonda's testimony, Vince went over to Rob's house, and that night he was going to figure this out, whether this Christianity was for real or not. I told him, all right, dude, you throw the coffee on, we're going to get down to some business, and I got some questions. And he went over to that house that night, and from 6 p.m. to 3 a.m. in the morning, I asked every question in the book. And deep down inside, Vince wanted to believe that Jesus Christ was the change he'd seen in his parents. But he kept up his guard, and I wanted to see if it was true. And I told myself I was going over to prove this guy to be a liar, but I was mistaken. And in those early morning hours, Vince gave in and trusted Christ. You know, this gentleman is a modern prodigal, but each one of us without Christ is either the modern prodigal or the modern older son. Either way, we need Christ. And the unfortunate side of the story here is that one came back to the father and we don't really know whether that older son ever came inside. It's kind of like, Jesus does that with some of his stories. He kind of leaves you hanging. But the point is this. Where are you today in your relationship with the Lord Jesus. What about your story? Because we're all writing a story. 
Where are you? Well, I tell you, if you're not with Jesus and if you haven't submitted yourself in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are in a dangerous, dangerous position. And you know in your heart whether it's real or not. You may have done it with your mouth. You may have done it in some sort of a churchy activity. You may have done it in your parents focusing on you as a young person. But you know whether it's real, whether you've had a real life change relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I was the older prodigal, by the way. That was my story. And I needed to get real with Jesus and realized I needed a Savior just as much as every other person in my family. By the way, my younger brother was the other way. He left home much like this story. And it's only been in the last couple of months that we've actually been able to reconcile. It's been, it's, it's an encouragement. Yeah. It's a real encouragement because things, you don't realize just how hard it is sometimes with families, eh? And how long those, those moments go. But I'm so thankful that we are both in the family of God. So what will you do with Jesus? I know I've extended a little bit, but I would not want to have missed the last song. So could we have the praise team come up and give us the last song? And uh, we'll let uh, Ryan, if you would, close in prayer. Thank you. Heavenly Father, as we go from here this week, Lord, maybe. Uh, be reminded that um, regardless of our circumstances, when we go running back, you're always there. I pray this in your name. Amen.